0: Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series in James. If you would like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. There's a a scene I love in the Avengers that I want to open with. I thought it was a little bit too appropriate uh, for this sermon this morning. Uh, Avengers, of course, is one of these... Movies that has a lot of biblical references to it, and there's this, a, a part at the very beginning where Loki is the evil adopted brother to Thor, and he wants to basically take over the planet Earth for himself, and he hires this uh, this whole army of alien creatures, the Chitauri, to come in and basically assert his authority and and take over the Earth, except for the Avengers that eventually step in. But one of the the great things about this, the first Avengers, it takes place in New York City, and Loki opens this portal for all of these alien creatures to come through and start invading right there in New York. And as they're looking up, and all these things are coming through this portal from space-age dimensions, there's these massive, huge, like, worms that just fly through the air. They look, literally, they look and act like worms, but they're not going through the ground, they're just going through the air, and anything in their way, they just destroy it. They're building skyscraper size. They just go throughout, and they're called the Chitauri Leviathan. Interesting term. They took it right out of scripture, I'm telling you. If you watch the Avengers, it will help you with your biblical theology. (laughs) and nobody knows how they're going to stop these huge creatures. It's this, this battle. Everything around them is falling apart. The Hulk is nowhere to be found. Aliens are just tearing everything up. Finally, Dr. Banner pulls up in this little motorcycle, this tiny little motorcycle, and they're about to just either eat their lunch for the day and give up, or they're going to find some sense of unity, and they're going to make some progress with this thing, and, and everybody, all the Avengers, kind of look at Dr. Banner as he pulls up, and they're just like, okay, first of all, why are you Dr. Banner and not the Hulk right now? We need the Hulk. We don't need Dr. Banner. Captain America makes the plan, and, and he turns and he looks at Dr. Banner. He says, Dr. Banner, this would be a really good time for you to get angry and turn into the Hulk. And this is one of the greatest lines. He looks right back at him, and he says, that's my secret, Captain, remember? I'm always angry. He turns into the Hulk and just gives one death blow to the Chitauri Leviathan, and it falls, and it's, it's awesome. It's me on screen, is what it is. It's just, it's, it's, every once in a while, the Hulk comes out. David Powlison has a, uh, a book called Good and Angry. I want to recommend it to you. He's a biblical counselor. It's a name that you might be familiar with. And he describes three types of angry people. One is one of my favorite cartoon characters of all time, Yosemite Sam. Back off, man, let's get the blaze, the guns blazing, right? He calls them the gunslingers. Gunslingers are angry people who point and wave outwardly, often displaying their anger as a weapon. They're either, number one, guns blazing, shooting everywhere, or number two, the gun is just sitting right out on the table, they're ready to pick it up, the safety is off. At any single time, their anger can be triggered. They're known as gunslingers. They like to cut others off and protect their turf. Paul Tripp reminds us that apart from Christ, we are much better at gunslinging than peacemaking. Far too often, as we deal with anger, we find ourselves as gunslingers. James' word for this type of person is that they are quick rather than slow to anger. Some of us who deal with anger are more like a volcano. This is a person who regularly has outbursts of anger, seemingly uncontrollable outbursts. The underlying heart of anger becomes a life defining characteristic for them. Volcanoes are sometimes ready to go off without any provocation, you move in the wrong way, you say the wrong thing, you act the wrong way, somebody is going to get hurt, somebody is going to suffer. Most of the time they've grown old of stuffing their feelings down, it's been bubbling up this whole time until all of a sudden everything erupts. Little things will push their buttons, which calls us to to ask and, and wonder what are those buttons in there that are so sensitive that are being pushed. Other people are, are more like an iceberg. The Bible often talks about uh, God being one who is slow to anger. The metaphor that's used there in the Old Testament is that his nostrils are slow to flare. It has to do with an emotion that is bottling up warmth, heat, uh, and anger is often, often associated with hot temperatures comments that are quickly said and you can't take them back, but some of the most ominous forms of anger are cold as ice. Foreigner, 1970, 77, she's as cold as ice. No, anybody? <laughs> thanks, thanks, Mark. Mark's finishing the wine. That's not a comment on you, Pamela. I'm sure you're not as cold as ice at all. Collison talks about anger in this way. Here's what he says. Anger stands out when it wears its colorful and dramatic costumes. Violent, restlessly embittered, ice-cold, flailing misery, and confusion. Romans had a a Latin phrase about anger. Probably not gonna pronounce this right. Ira furor brevis est. Anger is for a brief madness. Often it makes us crazy, blind, confused and confusing. Beams of sanity are, are rare, especially when a person is caught in the heat or the coldness of their anger. The reality is that all of us get angry. The difference we experience is not in kind, it's much more in degree. Some of us are just more angry than others. And so for the next couple of weeks in James, chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through chapter 5, verse 6, we're going to talk about being slow to angry, to anger as Christians. Um, thinking about our emotions before expressing them, dealing with them in a biblical way. Remember our verse that we've been using for the structure of James comes out of chapter 1, verse 19. That, know this, my beloved brothers, let every one of you be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So far, we've covered those, the first two in that list. James talked about being quick to hear in chapter 1, verse 21, all the way through the end of James chapter 2. We just finished chapter 3, which was all about being slow to speak. An authentic Christian thinks well before they speak. They taste their words before they spit them out. We are known for being slow to speak, not quick to speak. Now James is going to pick up the third in the list, being slow to anger, and I want to look at James 4, 1 through 10. We're going to talk about three foundational aspects of what it means to be slow to anger. James is going to talk about the cause of our anger, the core, what's beneath it, where does it reside, and finally, the cure to our anger, the cause, the core, and the cure. But our inappropriate displays of anger are only half the problem. Sometimes absence of outrage is just as sinful as an overuse of it and a wrong use of anger. Howard Hendricks used to have a quote, go something like this, "'My fear for some of you as pastors is not that you will, f- you will fail, it's that you'll actually succeed at doing the wrong things.'" The very same thing applies to anger. My fear for you is not that you will get angry in life and in your relationships. My fear is that you will get angry at the wrong things or not get angry at the times that you should display a righteous anger. Do you have an anger problem this morning? James chapter four, verses one through three. Look down at your texts. Let's read these first three verses. James four, verse one. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? And that last clause there in verse four is so key. Your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly. Spend it on your own passions. Are you a person that experiences a lot of conflicts in your life? Just think about the last year. Was the last year of your life full of more conflict or less? How about the last month? How would you do after the turn of the, of the new year, since January? Has your life been defined characteristically by more anger or less anger? Do certain things get under your skin and just drive you crazy? Are there little pet peeves that you have that if somebody just pokes the bear, mama Bear is gonna come alive. Three short verses here, James taught his audience a lot about anger. He talks about the what, the why, and the where. James is gonna give us three things as we work through these three verses. The what of anger, the where it resides, and the why. Why do people get so angry? Why does anger rage so often? Where does it start? What is the cause of the conflicts and the anger that we experience in our hearts? First, I want you to notice something about the language that James is using in these these verses. Look down at verse one again. What causes quarrels and fights? That order, quarrels first, fights next, is just reversed in verse three. Fights first and quarrels next at the end of verse three. So they're bookends. And right in the middle, you've got two really strong words, murder and war. Quarrels, fights, murder, war, fights, quarrels. What makes us so contentious as people living in a fallen world? What is causing all these conflicts around us? And ever since Genesis 3, humanity's favorite game is the blame game when it comes to anger. We always want to pass the buck on somebody else. It's always Mike's problem. It's always Christian's fault. It's the kids' fault. They were the ones that kept me up, and I was just trying to camp all weekend long. I just wanted to get some sleep. Couldn't get any sleep, and so it ruined the whole weekend. It's always Travis's fault. He's got to interject his opinion in that meeting. Why can't he just sit there and listen instead? We never look to ourselves. In traffic, it's always the driver's fault. In marriage, it's always the other spouse who's the problem. At work, it's always the coworker, the boss, the supply chain. In basketball, it's always the ref's. They're the only ones who win and lose games. In baseball, it's always the pitcher or the umpire. In school, it's always the teacher. Right, kids? It's her fault, it's his fault. In golf, it's always the club. It is never the person who's swinging the club. It is always the putter, it's never the person putting. You guys understand this? This is is just, I'm giving you a reflection and an understanding to, to know that, hey, It is never—it's never my swing that causes it to go left or right. It's always, Fred. It is always the club. I don't know. It's time for a new, new club. I want you to stop and consider something for a moment. People and situations can never, ever force you to be angry. Do you believe that? People and situations cannot force you to be angry. James is extremely clear, painfully clear on the cause of anger and conflicts in our life. And it's right there at the end of verse one. It's you. It's your passions. It's your desires. It's what you want the most. And when you don't get it, you get angry. And you get mad. We all do. We all experience it. Paul Tripp says, At the foundation of all worship, whether it's true or false, is a heart full of desire. At the foundation of all worship, whether true or false, is a heart full of desire. What is causing all the conflicts and the anger in your life? It's your passions, it's your pleasures, it's your desires. Number two, where? Where does that anger reside? Where do those conflicts start? unless you've been living in Iraq for the last few weeks, you guys know that there's a major war going on Ukraine and Russia, We have many people who have been on the mission field in the Ukraine, who know people that are there right now, and our prayers are obviously going out to them. Every time you turn on the news, you're going to hear about Ukraine and Russia for a while. It's going to be the first report. Every time you pick up a paper, if you ever read these things called newspapers, it's going to be the first headline at the top every single time for a while. I want you to listen really carefully. Beneath the wars between people is another more fundamental war that rages every single day in every single person's heart, but it never makes a headline. It's a war within you war. It's a war that takes place in your heart. This is the war that is beneath all other wars. It's not outside of you. You're not gonna be able to blame it on another person or another thing. It is within you, it is inside. Where is the problem when it comes to our anger, our sinful anger? Where is the problem when it comes to our conflicts? James is pointedly clear. It's within, it's not without. Just like he told us in chapter one that we read the scriptures and then we look into a mirror, When you experience anger, you look into a mirror. You look into your heart, and you figure out what are the desires, the passions, the pleasures, the things that you want that are rooting and taking control of your life. Where is the war raging? It's raging within you. Okay, so why? You got what causes it, you know where it happens. The passions are raging. They're happening within you, in your heart, every single moment of every single day. Why do these wars rage? James 4 verse 3 is a, it's really interesting verse. And and if I could identify one verse for all the prosperity gospel teachers out there that shows maybe a little bit of a faulty theology, James 4, 3 is gonna be one of those verses right off the top of my head. James 4, 3 says this. Look, you've got conflicts in your life. You've got anger issues in your life, here's what you need to do is you need to pray about it. Absolutely. Okay, I'm praying about it, I still have conflicts, I still have this anger issue in my life. What's going on there? Well, James tells you. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Lord, just I claim this Mercedes Benz in the name of Jesus. I'll use it for ministry, I promise. It's just your selfish wants, your selfish desires. And you're angry when you don't get them. I know you want to bless me with this mansion. Here's my seed money for this. Really? Or is that just for your self-gratification? Verse 3 is for every person that looks upon God as a divine vending machine, as a genie in a bottle, or a winning lottery ticket. If my relationship with God is right, then all my conflicts go away. All my anger issues go away. How's that working out for you? It goes much, much deeper than this. Romans 1 reminds us that getting the things that we want might be the worst thing for us. God gave them over. God gave them over. Sinful passions, a deluded mind. Do you have an anger problem? The cause is within you, James says, are you praying about it? It's still not getting better. Are your prayers selfish? Are they all about your pleasures and your gratifications? Number two, the core. What's at the core of our anger issues? Really at the foundation underneath all of them. Look down at verse four, you adulterous people. Steel toes, Travis, did you bring your steel toe boots today? I don't think James is trying to win an audience here. I really don't think he's, he's giving platitudes and saying nice things to people who are Christians in this context, and yet he's calling them adulterers. What is going on with James? Why is he so adamant and strong with this language here? An adulterer, really? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Have any of you been a a part of a church that has had to practice church discipline before? Have you guys seen it in action? Have you, seen, have you seen good experiences? How many of you have a good experience of church discipline, formal church discipline? Handful of you? We've had, we've had one, one or two, probably. Most of the experiences, pretty, pretty tough, pretty difficult. You see it go south in a hurry, it's usually not good. Um, it's interesting, we, we came from a church in Kansas, a rural church and uh, before we got here. And about three or four years before we got there, they went through a nasty church split. We're kind of asking a little bit about the history when we came and we figured out a lot more about the history as as we did ministry and, and heard more stories and more people and just life experiences of what they went through. And it came to find out that the church discipline issue that they really had a hard time with when the church split was a very contentious person It was rooted in one or two people that just uh, not good at handling conflict at all. The whole thing just wasn't handled well. There was slander. There was gossip. Uh, relational conflicts just multiplied everywhere, and so my first question, at least one of the first ones, was did anybody try to practice church discipline in that situation, and, and the elders all, all said no. They didn't have the opportunity to do so, nor did their wisdom lead them in that direction quick enough. And so I said, okay, well, you know, it's water in the br- under the bridge now, it's three, four years later. Has, has the church ever practiced church discipline, formal church discipline before? Do you have instances of when this has happened before? And say, yeah, there was not too long ago, actually, just a handful of years ago, there was a, a girl in a church that got pregnant outside of wedlock. And she came up from the church and confessed and repented of her sins, and all the elders just lovingly put their arms around her. It was just a, a great time of forgiveness and reconciliation in the body of Christ. It's, man, that's unbelievable. That's exactly what you'd hope for restored relationships in any situation of church discipline. So any, any other cases? And I thought for a second and said, yeah, you know what, There's, there was another one a couple of years before that. And I said, well, tell me about that situation, Brad. And so they said, well, it was eerily similar. There's another girl who got pregnant out of wedlock. She came up in front of the church and, and confessed and repented of her sins and she was lovingly, lovingly embraced and, and welcomed from there. And I said, do you remember any church discipline problems that weren't related to a sexual sin, like a scarlet letter A on the chest, or, or whatever it might be. I said, no, we, we really can't think of anything that's happened in, the, in that specific context. You ever heard this phrase before, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross? Y'all know what that means? means that all of us, apart from Christ, are sinful enemies at enmity with God and deserve nothing but death and condemnation. We are objects of God's wrath, apart from God. And yet, we still tend to distinguish scarlet letter sins from sins that are a little bit more palatable, more reasonable or understandable. So the the girl who gets pregnant out of wedlock, that's a really, really bad sin. And we're gonna label her, and we're gonna put a name on that, and we're gonna actually put a letter on the chest. But but these other sins, whether you're just, ah you're slandering, hey, it led to a church split, but we're not gonna church discipline that one. You're talking evil against another person, it led to chaos and disunity in the body of Christ, but you know what, we're not gonna go to church discipline on that one. Instead, we're gonna stick with these ones that are outwardly and obviously known to everybody else. Because guess what, somebody's walking into the congregation pregnant one day, and somebody notices it. Do you understand that everybody in this room is, is no better than somebody else who has committed adultery? Do you understand that when you try to define the seriousness of sin that way, you're gonna get at a brick wall really, really fast? right? So when we say that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, what that means is none of us are more deserving of grace and forgiveness than anybody else. The only reason that any of us get grace and forgiveness is because of Christ, not because of us. There's nothing that we can do to earn reconciliation in a relationship with God. He graciously gives it to enemies, to those who hate him. Here's a situation where James is calling out congregations for being spiritual adulterers. Did you read that and did you think, yep, that's me? Or did you read that and was your first inclination to think of somebody else? Did you internalize that at the heart level for you personally? Or did you think, wow, something was really happening there that I cannot imagine being the person that I am and where I am in my walk with Christ? James calls these churches, believers he's writing to, adulterers, and every single person in this room, listen really carefully, human conflicts and anger are rooted in spiritual adultery. Human conflicts that go awry and anger That is unjustified and sinful is all rooted in spiritual adultery. Every act of sin is an act of of stealing. Everybody's a thief when they sin. You are stealing worship from God and you are giving it to someone or something else that's created. Every sin is also an act of adultery because you are giving love to someone or something else more than you are giving that love to God. Does that make sense? I am a spiritual adulterer whenever I give my heart and passion to someone or something other than God. Our problem with anger and conflicts is not sinful people. Our problem with anger and conflicts is not difficult situations. Our problem with anger and conflict is not that we lose control. Our problem is that we give love that belongs only to God to something that's created instead. We convince ourselves that that thing, that person, that position, that status can fulfill us and love us better than God can love us. Biblical principle here. First of all, we need to think differently about our friendships. James chapter four. Uh, Are your your friends the ones who like you on Facebook? Man, Linda Johnson, pushed this thing on Instagram, like, 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 she's my best friend. Until she posts something that I don't like, then I'm defriending her instead. In the first century, friendship was much different than it is today. It's much deeper, much more meaningful. Uh, a friend shared the same values that you shared. A friend in the first century was someone who was loyal to you, loyal enough to say a difficult thing if they meant it was for your good. If you share more value with the world than you do with God, if you are more loyal to the world than you are loyal to God, you're committing spiritual adultery. And if that's really true, and that really happens to believers, we all desperately need the grace of God. Not only to come to faith, but also on a daily basis in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. God will give us grace. He is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. James also tells us that God is a jealous God. And and listen, typically we think of jealousy as as the green-eyed monster, right? That's a sin at every single turn of the page. But a jealousy with God is is not a vice, it's a virtue. And here's what he means by calling God a jealous God in this context. That God loves us too much to allow us to give our hearts to people and things that will never satisfy our deepest longings. God loves us too much to allow us to give our hearts and our loves to people and things that will never satisfy our deepest longings. And so He's jealous for our love. The cause of anger, cause of conflicts, it's the heart, it's within you. At the core of our anger issues are is spiritual adultery. What do you imagine when you experience or um, or think about a, a person getting angry at you? What do you picture? Do you picture Yosemite Sam, pistols blazing, somebody red in the face? In the face, sorry, red in the face. That was a that oh, could have been a Freudian slip there, maybe. Um, Do you think of syllables and words that are shouted at decibel levels that you've never heard them shouted before? Do you think of feet being stomped on the floor? Do you think of flailing, arms going up in the air, crying out? Anger is often associated with, with several things, and those images are there for a reason in your life. When you think about anger, you can think about irritability. Pallison here says that irritability is anger on a hair trigger. It's those who are cranky, grouchy, testy. Any given second just don't hit the wrong button, again, because they are very irritable. Some angry people and anger just goes down the line of argumentation. I'll get that word out eventually. Uh, People who always want to pick a fight. Some angry people are just harboring deep-rooted bitterness in their life. You got uh, conflicts and issues in your life, and you got somebody who keeps going back to the file cabinet drawer. Yeah, but remember what you said in March 2015? Here's what happened, here's what that situation was. All of a sudden, we've got an iron memory on things from the past that we're gonna use against somebody because you're nursing a grudge, unwilling to forgive and let it go, and praying for the ability to move on through it, forgiving the other person, the other person forgiving you. Anger can be violent. Anger can be passive. Anger is almost always rooted in a self-righteousness. We put ourselves in the place of God. One writer put it this way, The problem with anger is that it flares too quickly, alienates too many, burns too long, causes too much pain, hides too well, and feels all too good. Anger is a moral sin, because anger always makes a moral value judgment. Every time you get angry, you are expressing your morals, what's right and what's wrong, at least in your mind and in your heart. You'll take on the stance of the critic, the judge, the enemy, and the plaintiff all at the same time. Anger is always judgmental. If you want a definition for anger, here you go. Anger is an active displeasure towards something that's important enough for you to care about. Do you care about ending sentences with prepositions? Did that make you angry? (laughs) Somebody. James is asking us a question, all of us. Have you looked into your own heart the last time you got really angry about something? Have you started with yourself? Are you angry about the things that God's angry about? Are you angry about the things of the world? Thankfully, James doesn't end there. He gives us a cure. And here's where I want to Uh, bring some application before we take the Lord's Supper. Number one. The cure for anger starts vertical, and then it moves horizontal. If you and I are going to deal with the conflicts and the anger issues that we have in our hearts, and all of us have them, it's going to start with our relationship to God vertically before it impacts our relationships with other people horizontally. The cure for anger is not found by going to someone or eliminating something out of your life. The cure to anger is first found by going vertically to God. James doesn't ask his congregation and the people that he's writing to here to investigate who's in the wrong. He doesn't ask who fired the first shot. He doesn't say that this person needs to apologize first He tells the person who's got anger in their life, look in the mirror, start with you. What have you contributed to the problem first? If human anger and conflicts have a core in spiritual adultery, change must begin by bowing before God first in confession and repentance. James is not telling believers to clear the air. He's certainly not calling for arms, and he's not telling us to do any other thing besides Cleanse our hearts first and foremost. He's taking it to the heart level in a relationship vertically with God. He says in verse seven, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Step number one. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Step number two, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That is an ironclad promise for people that struggle with anger, and it is it is an issue. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Stop submitting your hearts to a glory, a weightiness, and a significance that is found in this world, and start submitting to Christ and to the glory of God instead. Number two, face the reality of indwelling sin in all of our bend toward God replacements. If you're a person who struggles with anger, face the reality of indwelling sin in your life. The battle is real, so real that James calls it a war. This is not for the faint at heart. Dealing with ourselves and looking into the heart is an all-out battle. It's a war. What do you do in preparation for war? You train. You prepare for the worst because it's going to get ugly. This is a war, and we all fight it. We've got to fight it at the deepest levels of our heart. Sun Shu Sun has developed military techniques and manuals for the, that the American military, the U.S. military, still uses today. If you know your enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a thousand battles, is what he says. Every time you see your sin for what it is, you realize that you're a hypocrite as a Christian. Every time you see your anger for what it is, you realize that you have committed idolatry as a Christian. Every time you entertain God replacements, we realize that we are spiritual adulterers. We have been unfaithful in our marriage relationship with God as the bride of Christ. And so, what does James tell us to do? Look down at verse 9. When you see the reality of your sin, all of us look into our hearts. What is the response? That is, it's terrible. So what does he say? Verse 9, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning. Hang on a second. I thought we were talking about the gospel here. Shouldn't those words be reversed? Shouldn't our mourning be turned into laughter now that we have grace and we know Jesus? Well, yes, it will be, but not first. At the first, it's terrible because there's no escape from your personal sin. You are culpable and you are guilty before an all-holy God. And that is a, a depressing, hopeless place to be until you find grace and forgiveness and realize the, uh, the glory of reconciliation and restoration. Let your laughter be turned into mourning. Let your joy be turned into gloom. Humble yourselves, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Listen carefully. Whatever rules your heart, at any given moment in life will exercise an inescapable influence on your life and on your behavior. Whatever rules your heart will shape the way that you deal with everything in life. There is a war going on in your heart right now and every single day until you reach glory with Jesus. It's a war within you war. It is the kingdom of God battling against the kingdom of creation in this world. Who is going to win the allegiance? Who is going to win that loyalty? Thanks be to God that he has given us victory and he has delivered us from this wretched man that is inside of us. Thanks be to God that he has given us grace to overcome, that he gives us power to fight this battle on a daily basis. I want to end with a a lengthy quote here. This is from Paul Tripp. Instruments in the hands of the Redeemer. He says this, There is a war going on beneath the human skirmishes of everyday life. On the one side is a jealous God. He is the giver of a jealous grace. He will not rest until our hearts are completely His. On the other side is a devious enemy who allures us with the attractions of creation. He knows our weaknesses all too well. He knows that we are prone to wander and prone to replace God. He whispers in our ears the lies of all lies that life can be found apart from God. When we begin to believe that created things give us life, Satan has us. We will seek and we will serve creation, often unaware of our our idolatry. And we will blame people in situations for the resulting chaos and conflicts, when they really are the fruit of our own idolatry. How do you overcome this deal? Humbly submit yourselves to God. (laughs) Confess. And I've got some deeply rooted issues in my heart. Lord, please forgive me. I've shown more love to the world and to things than I've shown to you. Like an unfaithful spouse in marriage, I've committed spiritual adultery. And then what happens? He gives us the grace. He is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If we would simply humble ourselves before an almighty God.